0: So this one's going to be about light and uh, the, you know, the wise men coming and realizing this babe is the son of God. But I, I also feel like it's important to note, as I was doing this, you know, it's nice to, to have the liturgical year as sort of a pedagogical tool to teach. Right? You pull out one thing, the incarnation like last week, and you really look at it closely. But I think it's important to remember that you know, the, the blessing it is to be born A.D., uh, to be born after the coming of Christ. And so every Sunday for us is Christmas. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is the Feast of the Epiphany, uh, is this you know, the victory supper of the Lamb. And I just wanted to, to remind everyone that it is Epiphany. We're going to be narrowing in a little bit, but to not let the liturgical season you know, take away from the fact that every week we have this glorious holiday, every week to come and celebrate the truth of the gospel. Okay, so today we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verse 14. If you have a Bible, please turn there with me. John chapter 1, verse 14. I will read that for us now. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the coming of your Son, We thank you for uh, the Christmas season and Advent and Epiphany and all of the uh, glorious truths that are revealed to us in the scriptures about you and your son and what it means for our everyday lives. And as we enter into this new year, Father, we pray that um, we wouldn't make an idol of a new year, an idol of all the things we hoped we were going to become and all the things we hope we will become. But instead, Father, we look to your son who is, in fact, remaking us. And we pray, Father, that we would lean into that process, that we would look to him to change us, that we would look to him to be all the things that we need in this world and the world to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now last week we covered the first eight words of this verse. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. A startling revelation in itself. But the Apostle John then extends the wonder. And, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as if God becoming a man wasn't enough, John states that we have seen his glory. (laughs) Glory. Now, why glory? Why not power? Why not miracles or ministry or Jesus's life? Affirming the fact that God really had become a man. Why does John make seeing Jesus's glory the primary focus of his prologue here? What role did glory play in first century Jewish theology and culture? Now, on top of that, why in the world does John say we? Certainly, he means the disciples and the 500 witnesses. He couldn't be talking about you and me, could he? We weren't there. I was not there in first century Palestine to see baby Jesus in the manger. And yet he says, we have seen his glory. Indeed, indeed, John is filling the page with wonderful and mysterious assertions. John's Christmas story is full of gifts, rare and wondrous gifts. See, John has experienced the rarest and most prized wonder that any human being has experienced, seeing the glory of God with eyes of flesh. And he is telling us that we all have, anyone who has read John's gospel or any of the gospels. The word became flesh. Those who sit in the shadow of death have seen a great light the light of the world, a stunning glory, the glory of God, the glory of the suffering servant, the glory of the promised son of Genesis that all believers have longed to see since Adam. You have seen it, and you can see it again. It's too wonderful, isn't it? It's a revelation full of grace and truth. This is, uh, my wife and I were joking, after everything I said here, I feel like just dropping the mic and walking away, because that seems like quite (laughs) quite a bit to ponder in itself. The sun of righteousness has dawned. It is in fact, there has in fact been a great epiphany. And so, before we get into the heart of this, let's step back for a moment and consider the role that glory played in Jewish culture and theology. Now, With references in English Bibles ranging from 275 times in the NIV to 350 times in the RSV, the word glory is one of the master images that helps tell the story of the entire Bible. A survey of the references yields a tour of some of the greatest moments of the Old Testament. The giving of the law in Exodus 24, the wilderness wanderings in the Book of Numbers, the worship of God in the tabernacle, and then the temple as well as the call and prophetic vision of Isaiah and Ezekiel. Glory is the theme of all of those events. And that's quite a few events, isn't it? Glory played a major role in all of those stories. The glory of God is, a, is in effect, the term used to express that which, can, which man can apprehend for the presence of God, but not actually see. And let me say that again. The glory of God is, in effect the term that we use to express that which man can apprehend of the presence of God, but not actually see. And of course, in my saying that, it's in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the glory of God is something man can apprehend. He knows it's there, but he can't see it. It's, it's crucial to understand that. They never see it. They can't see it. The presence and image of God is called glorious because of the word glory, the Hebrew word kebab, not kebab, but kebab includes these ideas, splendor, beauty, magnificence, radiance, light, rapture. It also includes words like weight and substance, wealth and dignity, noble bearing and honor. This is how this word is used. When a man is called glorious, you're saying that he looks, he's big, he's wealthy, he's fat because he can afford to eat a lot, right? The word glory and the word fat are the same. This is why Eli's sons were stealing God's glory because they were stealing the fat parts of the sacrifices that were meant for him. So they're stealing his fat, ha-ha, stealing his glory. Right? This is how the Jews thought of this word. Right? There's, right? When we see a fat man, we don't usually say that he's not blessed. Well, modern men run into some trouble there, but usually a fat man in most cultures is considered blessed because he eats a lot. Right? He probably doesn't have to work too hard either. And, and all of this stems from the fact that when, when they would apprehend the presence of God, it was big, it was weighty, it would bow you down, and it was glorious and full of light and splendor. Now, in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord was veiled, primarily by a cloud. Okay? Some people think the cloud is God's presence. It's not. The cloud is what protects you from seeing it. Because if you saw his presence, your head would explode. Because your little fallen eyes of flesh couldn't handle it. So God's presence goes around in the Old Testament. He's got this cloud around it that protects you from seeing his actual presence. Here's some examples. Exodus chapter 40, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See, the cloud is on the outside. The presence is within the tabernacle. He doesn't get to see it. He's protected from having to see it. 1 Kings 8.11. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is in the midst of the cloud, guarded by the cloud. No one ever sees the glory of the Lord. Now Moses asks to see the glory of the Lord. He says, please, I want one thing, one thing only. And I I imagine most of you, if we asked you, what is, if we could give you one thing, what would it be? I think most of us would agree with Moses. Could we just see you? Could we Please, just for a moment, look at you. And when he says it, he says, see your glory. Because that's what glory is, is, is the face of God. Now this is what happens to Moses. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Because they're dead now. Right? And Adam walked in the cool of the day with the Lord and looked in his face. And then we fell and died. And now as dead things walking around this earth, we cannot look at the Lord in the face. We can't bear it. When Moses requests to see God's glory, it is so intense that God has to shield him from the full effect. No one can see the face of God And yet, John says, we have seen his glory. To behold God in the face, to see him, is the desire of every human heart to behold ultimate truth. Think about it. If you look upon the Lord, beings who die, we want to see eternity, don't we? Sinners, we want to see sinlessness. We want to see holiness. We want to see something that's perfect. right? How many of us feel that way, if we could just see something that doesn't die, if we could just see something that is sinless, if we could just see something that is good, to truly behold it, wouldn't that fill you with hope? Wouldn't that change the way you look at the world, the way you live your life? This is what we all want. This is what we all want. Now, because glory appears as a stock evaluative term to ascribe greatness to God, it may appear to be more of an abstraction in a concrete image, like Joel's children. They knew it belonged to the Lord. But once you actually have to define what it is, it's kind of difficult to say. It's kind of difficult to say. But an Old Testament example, I think, would help us. Here's man coming in contact with the presence of the Lord. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. They don't actually see it. They know it's there and they know what it is. It's goodness. It's love, steadfast and enduring love. Glory is apprehended, though not seen. Glory is an image of divine transcendence as it makes itself apprehensible to people. It combines awe and terror. It simultaneously invites and yet keeps you at a distance. When Moses encounters the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai, the visible manifestation is a cloud that covers the mountain and brilliance like a devouring fire. In Psalm 29, the song of the thunderstorm, the glory of God, it says, is said to thunder upon the waters, filling human observers with such wonder and terror that they cry, glory. God brandishes glory as a soldier wields a sword. It's both sacred and dangerous. Glory inspires awe and fear and respect on the part of the beholders. When Isaiah and Ezekiel individually encounter the glory of God in a vision, their response is to feel small and unworthy. Ezekiel 128, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. It draws you near, doesn't it, even here in these verses? Even as it holds us at a distance. Can anyone yet say what it is? (laughs) We can't. It's magnificent. The glory of God, in some sense, is communicable by those who have drawn near to it. This is also very strange. For Moses' face shone whenever he spoke with God. It shone. He had to put a veil over it because just being near the cloud where the presence was would transfigurate him. And make him shine like bronze. And it was so intense that the other people were too terrified to even look at it. Even though they all wanted to go up there and see it too. Okay? Being near the presence of God, the glory of God, does something to the people who are near it. And, and it transforms them into something otherworldly. Beyond what our normal senses would see even in the glory of a sunrise. Or the glory of a sunset. Or in the moon. The glory of God in the Old Testament is otherworldly and demonstrates the separation of God and fallen man. Okay. Now this is, this is interesting. Now we're going to take a turn here. The prophets who know that this is what every human heart wants and that this is ultimately what the heart of God is all about is this presence, his presence drawing near to man. The Old Testament eschatological view of the world, where it's all headed is the fact that this presence would not remain far from us forever there would not always be a cloud. This is the promise. Isaiah 62. I'm sorry. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. Sounds like the Old Testament to me. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you like a sun of righteousness. It will rise up and we will see it. It is said that all people will come to Jerusalem to drink deeply with delight from the abundance of her glory, Isaiah 66, 11. The glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord is what humans long for. The, tr- the transcendent beauty, the everlasting goodness, the holiness, the goodness of God, him, what makes him him, this is what we all long for, right? What did she want in the garden? If you eat it, you'll be like him. What do we want? We all want to be gods, don't we? We, w- we want to draw near to this. We want this transcendence, this everlasting beauty, this holiness, this power, this goodness. We want it. Now, we either want it as fallen creatures for ourselves or this mysterious otherness. We want to just be near it. We want to draw near to it. And this is why man seeks out religion, because he wants to be near this transcendent beauty. Now, these foregoing references, right? I'm seven pages into this thing. It seems like a lot, and that's just scratching the surface. Okay? It was everything I could do with a crowbar to cram this many things in here. Once you start hearing glory, thinking glory, looking for glory, it's everywhere, right? There are a myriad of references, and I encourage you to seek them out. Glory is one of the great positive images of the Bible. The language of the mystic and the believing heart that has glimpsed or desires to glimpse the greatness of God. It is paradoxically a divine quality that is remote from human finitude and yet it is held out to believers as something that they will share. You can't come near it. Touchdown. (laughs) So glory is this thing that's, that's held out offered to people. You're all going to get it, and yet when you get near it, it's terrifying, and you have to veil your face. This is, this is what the Old Testament is, as was read for us earlier today. They had to put a veil over their face, and that veil remains because there's, there's something that's separating them from it. And thankfully, because if you get near it, you die. The Old Testament's very clear. But now John comes into the story. And he says that he has seen the glory of God. He says we have seen the glory of God. Now, I think it's very important that we get into this and and look at it specifically what he's saying. Because I think there's three kinds of glory that he sees. He's talking about three manifestations of God's glory. Trinitarian, I know. Isn't it amazing how things work out that way? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the only son of the father. There are three manifestations of God's glory that John has seen. The glory of the word, which is the glory of God himself. The glory of the word become flesh, the glory of the humble servant. And the glory of the only son of the father. The glory of the warrior king, the son of promise, the Messiah. See, if you work this verse out, he says there's three kinds of glory. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. The glory of the word, and the glory of the word become flesh. The glory as of the only son of the father. See how that worked out? So when you stop and actually cut this verse up, do some surgery, there is a lot of glory that John has seen. But he says, we. Don't forget that. We're coming back to that. We have seen this glory. Now the glory of the word, the glory of God himself. Jesus performs a great many, many miracles. I wrote that. I didn't think it was going to be so hard to say. Jesus performs a great many Miracles. Miracles that demonstrate that he is the God who created and rules this world. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. The one through whom all things were made and in whom all things hold together. He recreates as easily as he created by speaking words of power. The awesome authority of the living God is dwelling in human form. Remember, he didn't leave it in heaven. He's carrying it around. His godness is there. Veiled, right? In flesh. It's like the cloud held the presence of God. The flesh now holds the presence of God. It's the same thing. At the end of Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine, it describes the incident in this way. John chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus manifested his glory by turning water into wine with a word. Now remember that Jesus didn't leave his divine nature in heaven. He veiled it with flesh. It's going around with him. The everlasting, the all-powerful godness is inside his human nature. And here some of that power squeaks out. He can't hold it back forever, right? Like last week when I said the beach ball. Push a beach ball under the water, it's only going to be able to hold it back for so long. And this is what Jesus is like. He's got the power of the living God. It's his The temptation here is not to use it. And so occasionally, in order to show that God the Father is God the Father, that he is in fact the Son, he lets a little of it out. Just a little. And just a little is all it takes to get them all to believe in him. Now, Jesus' inaugural miracle, Jesus' first self-manifestation of his glory, is making water into wine. Now, I'm not going to get into the fact that water is always turned into wine, so that's not the miracle. It's the quickness with which he did it. Okay? That's the miracle part. But again, it's not raising somebody from the dead. It's not healing some sick person. His first manifestation of his glory, that first flash, is something that's superfluous. Right? These partiers probably needed the water more than they needed the wine, if you ask me, I mean, from what I read about Jewish weddings. But this is the God of joy. of making hearts merry. This is the kingdom of a God that has come into the world, making something that isn't needed, but blesses and fills the heart with laughter and joy. And the disciples see it. And so John tells us, Jesus is no mere man. He displayed his glory as the second member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity. And what did he want to show us? That the kingdom of heaven is about wine. It's about joy. about making hearts filled with delight and laughter and song. But that's not all. The glory of the word became flesh, the glory of the humble servant. Okay? He's not just God. He's the God who became a man. And he walked around, holding that power inside of him. We next turn to John's story about Jesus and his friend Lazarus. Jesus' friend Lazarus, not John's friend Lazarus. At the beginning of the story, when Jesus first hears that Lazarus is ill, it says in John eleven four. but when, jo- when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus goes to the tomb and is confronted by the grief of Lazarus' sister first, and then Jesus is confronted by the mourners. The word of God became flesh, stands at the tomb of a single dead human being, And what is his response? He weeps, it says in John 11.35. God, who has seen how many millions of people come and go, stands at the tomb of a single person overcome by sin because death is the wage of sin, and he weeps. He stands there and cries. Isaiah 53 says that the suffering servant, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But Jesus came to set the captives free, didn't he? So the word became flesh, restores life to the dead, a brother to his sisters, a man to his friend, joy to the mourners. The glory of the Lord, the everlasting life, the gracious love are seen in Jesus as the humble servant raising Lazarus from the dead. Now the glory of the Lord, the one who stands at the tomb of every human being, every human being, calling to them through his tears, and to those who hear His voice, who come, he gives them everlasting life. John saw this glory. Jesus told Lazarus, his sister in John 11:40, "Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That thing they couldn't go near. Here it is. And what is it doing? What is it doing? That glory is going around in power and in humility. This is the glory of the humility of the word become flesh. John saw Jesus' unique glory as the sovereign servant of God. And now, lastly, the third glory that he sees. The glory of the only son of the father. The glory of the warrior king, the son of promise, the Messiah. Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. Jesus explains why there have been reports of Jesus' resurrection, right? They're confused. This is what's been going on, and Jesus is now going to explain it to them. The significant of the death of the Messiah. Luke twenty-four, twenty-five through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Messiah should suffer to enter his glory. The glory being the resurrection. Jesus lays his life down and takes it up again because he is the living God. Okay, No one takes it from him. He lays it down and he takes it up again. He is bruised, he suffers and dies for our sins, but this is to fulfill all the scriptures concerning himself, concerning righteousness and the law, so that the glory, the restoration of full access to God's presence, might be attained for mankind by his resurrection. This is the glory of the only Son of the Father, mentioned in John 1.14. This is what the scriptures, in fact, are all about. This right here. This is what the entire Bible is about. Now, one Greek word is translated into the only son of. Okay? It's one word. Well I know I bet Jared knows what it is, but he's leaving. There's one word monogenes. Monogenes. That word is translated into the only son of. Now, it means one of a kind, unique. Son. One of a kind, unique. Now, this word is loaded. It's a one-word abbreviation of the entire Old Testament. After Adam is outwitted and defeated by Satan, we're going back to Genesis now, fallen Adam loses the presence, the glory of God, and yet God makes a promise to him. God says to Satan in Genesis 3.15 in Adam's hearing, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The son of promise would be bruised but would defeat Satan. Eve thinks it's Abel, right? We have gotten a child by the Lord, she says. Look, the son of promise has come. And then the son of Satan, Cain, kills him. So I guess it's not going to be re- resolved quite that quickly, Eve. So then who is it? Who's the monogenes of God? Is it Noah? Not Noah. Abraham? Nope. David? Solomon, this is what the whole entire Old Testament is about. The, when is this monogenes going to show up and restore to us what we've lost, which isn't the garden, but the presence of the Lord, his glory? When are we going to get it back? Who is going to free us from this body of death? The word monogenes is also found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up offering up his only son, his monogenes, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isaac was the monogenes, the one through whom Abraham's blessing to the nations would come. See, there are lots of monogenes. Lots of them. But there's only one monogenes of God. Lots of men in the Old Testament have them. They're all over the place. But there's only one monogenes of God. One special, unique son of God. This is what the entire Old Testament is about, is awaiting his coming. When is he going to get here? When will the son of promise come? When will he free us from this body of death and restore to us the presence of God, his glory? God says that Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring would be at war. Now, that's what enmity means in Genesis 3.15, but last I checked, snakes, Satan devils, fallen angels, don't have kids, right? Your kids, Satan, are going to fight her kids. But both sets, both families are going to come through her. This is what's fascinating. This is why there's so many genealogies in Genesis. There's two families now. And and again, this is what the entire Old Testament is about. Until in the end, Israel is scattered to the four winds, right? The sons of Satan rule over the world. This is why Satan can offer the kingdoms to Jesus. If you worship me, I will give them all to you because his sons have conquered it all. When is the monogenes of God going to come and free us and restore us and give us back the presence of God? Now, there is no more glory that a human being could possibly have than to be the monogenes of God. The only begotten, unique, special son. And this is the glory that John saw. This is the glory that John saw. This is the fam- most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the wor- world that he gave his monogenes, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, this Isaac did come. This Isaac, too, carried his wood up a hill. But this Isaac was sacrificed by God the Father who loves us so that he could have us all as sons and daughters. That is the, mo- the glory that John has seen in Jesus. John John stood at the foot of the cross. Later he knelt before the resurrected monogenes and he saw the unique and special glory of God in him. John has seen the glory of the word. The word become flesh, the monogenes of God. Now the Greek word for for glory is doxo. Doxology is to give give glory to God. We live in the era now, the, the gospel of John is all about doxology. Because we have seen his glory, and so we give glory to him. right? When we stand up and we sing that song at the end of service, the doxology, it's giving glory to God. And we only have it because he's given it to us. And the word become flesh, the only son of the father. Now, why does, don't worry, I'm turning towards home now. <laughs> we still have some unfinished business with our beloved John, though. Why in the world does he say we? This seems like quite a remarkable number of things that he's witnessed. Why does he say we? If you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4. chapter 4 if i can find it chapter 4 we're going to go to verse 3 through 4 and then chapter or and then also verse 6 okay chapter 4 3 through 4 and then verse 6 and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel is the good news, the good news about Jesus. It's the narrated events of Jesus's life. It's his words, it's his ministry, it's his death, it's his resurrection, it's his sending of the Spirit. The gospels are the words about the word of God incarnate, the suffering servant, the monogenes of God. Now, if you have read the gospels, then you have read the whole story, what the Old Testament is all about, the monogenes entering his glory, what all the epistles in the rest of the New Testament goes on to comment on. The Gospels are the words about Jesus, the word of God. In verse 6, it says, God gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Within the Gospels is the face, is the presence, the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you have read them, you have seen his face. If you've sat and opened them before you, you have sat in the presence. And because we have the spirit of God, there's no veil. There's no veil. The scriptures organically relate to the incarnate word. As the light of the world, Christ is the sum and brightness of all Old Testament truth. And he willed that the light be brought into the world be preserved again as the sum and brightness of the New Testament. As Herman Baffnick puts it, Scripture is the product of God's incarnation in Christ, and in a sense, its continuation. And so if you read them, you behold what John beheld, the glory of God. We, the author and reader of the Gospel of John, are one. We have seen his glory. Now you might be saying, "All right, that was a trick, that was funny, that was good we saw it, and then you say, we read a book. That's funny. Because I was reading a book, seeing seeing the face of Jesus Christ. How is eating bread eating his flesh? Hmm. I was sitting here, the same as sitting in the inner, inner heavenlies, where the throne of God is. it doesn't seem even as glorious as standing outside of a temple that's covered in a cloud, does it? Now, hmm, maybe we should talk about veiling. Maybe we should discuss that. Who's veiling it? He's not veiling it. And this book, because this book is not like other books, you when you open it and when you behold what it says, you behold the face of God. It's self-authenticating. For me, this is it. It shows something and describes something so beautiful and so wondrous, I don't even need to get into a historical argument about it. I can whoop you with a historical argument about it. Trust me. And if you want to have that conversation, I will. But if you look in this, what else is so beautiful, so wondrous, so good, so satisfying to the soul in all the ways I didn't even know I needed satisfaction that this lacks? John 17:20. Jesus said this in his high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also, he doesn't ask for these only, his apostles, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, all of them, those here and those not here that they may be one even as we are one, right? So now we, we are one with the author of the gospel as we read it. And through doing that, we become we, we with the God who it describes. Second Corinthians, it says in 4.6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the creator God, the word of God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 6.17, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. God gives the Spirit to us. He puts the light into our hearts that that comes out through our eyes that shines on this page, that shows forth the glory of God, the face of Jesus Christ. Just as Moses was transformed into a majestic and transcendent image by drawing near to the glory of God's presence, so too are we transformed into the majestic and transcendent images by drawing near to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If the Lord God came into the world and they wrote down everything that we could possibly understand or know about him, and he gives you the Spirit to comprehend what's written there, what's preventing you every day to sit down and behold the glory of God. The veil has been taken away. Are you putting a veil in front of it? Are we people of the word? Are we? Are we people of MTV and YouTube and Facebook? Lots of words there. None of them are beholding the glory, right? None of them are holding the glory of the Lord. John said the glory we behold is full of grace and truth. God's fullness, God's grace, God's truth. They are unveiled and offered to you free of charge. Now will you look into this light? Are you hungry for this light? Or are you afraid of what it might reveal? That's why people avoid it. I don't want to shine that light on me because it might show something I don't want to see, something I don't want to admit. Are you too full, like the innkeepers, to give room to the Lord? Do you need rescuing? Do you need truth? Are you empty and weary and in need of rest? Do you sit in your car? Do you sit at your home where you're doing all the mom stuff that you do and the homeschooling stuff you do and waiting to get to work and waiting to get through work and waiting for your TV show to come on and goodness are the Seahawks going to win and are we all just a little bit hungry for glory? Our glory, the experience of glory, Something other than what we have, some fullness, some truth, some grace. Don't we all long for it in our hearts? Just because we've eaten it before doesn't mean we aren't, shouldn't be hungry for it again. Jesus has a fullness of all the spiritual blessings we need. There is never a circumstance beyond his ability to provide. When the wine ran out at the wedding in Cana, Jesus had the fullness to provide an abundance of the highest quality. When he met a woman shamed by her sin, Jesus was able to make her born again. For a man who had been lame for 38 years, Jesus had power to heal. When a vast crowd was hungry, he fed them with just five loaves. Even death did not exhaust his fullness, not Lazarus' death, not his own. He can provide for all our needs out of his infinite and almighty divine life and also out of his inexhaustible well of love for us. We have beheld his fullness. We have beheld his grace and his truth and his glory. And we need and we need and we need to experience it again and again and again. His glory is yours. Ask him for it. Seek it. Knock. And it will be opened. And you will be open to it. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the word of God become flesh. We thank you, Father, for the glory of the scriptures, the goodness and the light, the holiness, the perfection, the beauty. We pray, Father, we admit, we confess to you that we are full of the things of this world. We are full of seeking our own glory. We are full of the glory that this world offers. And we are reluctant and slow to come to the glory of the face of Jesus Christ recorded in the Gospels. And I pray, Father, for all of us that you would who have put eternity in our hearts. Lead us to the living water that doesn't end, to the glory that doesn't end, the life that doesn't end, the fullness of truth and grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us to eat. And as we eat, to make us hungrier and hungrier and eat more and more until we are overflowing with the life of Christ. We pray these things in the name of him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.